Welcome to Founders First, a show about mental health and entrepreneurship and how to build resilience to stay stronger, happier, and be more successful. You can engage more in the conversation by going to the App Store on your phone and searching Founders First Community. Today's guest needs little introduction, but to build the suspense a little, he's been an early stage investor and entrepreneur for over 30 years, co-founding two venture capital firms before he started Foundry Group and the global startup accelerator Techstars. If you haven't guessed by now, I'm speaking with Brad Feld. His success and wealth of experience have made him an authority on building companies, but he's also known for the vulnerability in which he speaks about the personal challenges he's experienced along the way. One of the trademarks of entrepreneurs is our tendency to get into a feast or famine cycle. We work compulsively and brilliantly and do amazing things, but then many of us go through these crash periods where exhaustion can entirely derail us, even leading us into difficult periods of self-doubt, self-medicating, even depression. One of our focus areas in the Founders First System is finding ways to level out this cycle as it ultimately damages us in the long term. I saw an interview with your amazing wife, Amy, and she said you were the hardest working person she knew in college. And that was at MIT, so that's quite a statement. But the brilliance and compulsion that helped you per perform so well then, and for many years into the future, came at a cost. So with your permission, I'd like to provide some context to a quote I'm about to share, and then you can tell us about it. It's the summer of 2000, and you're absolutely consumed by your work. You've been with Amy for many years already at this point, but the work situation has gotten so bad that you find yourself saying the following to her. It's on me to try and change. You're the person I was put on this planet for. I hope you'll give me one more chance. Can you tell us more about that moment? Sure. <clears throat> so that, uh, that summer, uh, and maybe it was even into the fall, uh, the internet bubble uh, was deflating <clears throat> very rapidly. And my, my world was a total shit show from a work perspective. Um, I had investments all across the country. I was uh, co-chairman of two public companies, both which were falling apart, one which went, ultimately went bankrupt. And uh, I had sort of this rhythm where on Monday mornings I would fly to California, uh, where my venture, the venture firm I was part of uh, was based. I would spend Monday, maybe Tuesday in California. I'd take a red eye, I'd fly across the country uh, to New York, where one of the companies I was co-chairman of was based. I'd work out of their offices you know, for a day or two. Sometimes I'd fly somewhere else and eventually I'd get back home on Friday. Uh, and I'd crash over the weekend and I'd sort of try to catch up on stuff. And then I would leave four o'clock and I'd get up at four o'clock in the morning, Monday and, uh, drive to the airport at DIA and do it again. So that was kind of the rhythm of that time. And it was intense. It was intense following a very incredible and intense three years that were very positive where, you know, if you sneezed, you made money. I mean, it was one of these things where, really shitty companies were being very successful things that we funded that you know if you looked at rationally with some distance would say why why in the world would you invest in that mm -hmm. uh you know those things worked and then on the other side of it of course nothing worked um this particular instance amy met me in boston she flew to boston on a friday and we um uh we were spending the weekend with friends of ours and uh, Providence, Rhode Island. 
And so uh, black car, I had a black car picker up at the airport. I'm sure it then came and picked me up wherever I was. We got in the car. I was, the drive to, uh, that's in Providence, I'm at Newport. The drive to Newport's about an hour. So I'm in, I'm on the phone the whole way. So literally when she, you know, the car picks me up, I'm on the phone. Uh, at some point the call ends and I say, hi, how are you? And then I answer a call. We go to our friend's house and it's probably like two or three on a Friday afternoon. And I keep working and I keep working because I got a shitload of things to do. And, you know, she and, I, and my friends are sort of hanging out and having sort of a beautiful afternoon in the backyard and I'm working and, you know, eventually I finish and we go to dinner and within about, uh, we ordered, but you know, whatever, 10, 15 minutes of being at dinner, my phone rings. And it's important to know this is before there's caller ID. This is when the phone rings. You don't really know who's calling you. Um, and so in dinner, you know, I, I answer the phone and I, uh, I say to that, you know, I hear who it is. I say, hang on, I got to deal with this for a few minutes, some work thing. And I left the restaurant to go outside knowing that like sitting at the table, talking on the phone wasn't going to work. <laughs> and I do my call and I come back and they're eating dessert. So like one of the things that's really clear is like no, absolutely no sense of time or prioritization uh, on top of everything else. And, you know, of course I'm exhausted. It's eight o'clock at night. Like, why the fuck am I on the phone? I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so we go back uh, to our friend's house and, you know, Amy is very unhappy. I mean, she's, she's cold. She's, you know, you can, you, you know, that feeling when with you, your partner and you've done something, you know, we've got a long weekend ahead of us, but you've just started off completely wrong. <laughs> and we get back to the, you know, we, we say goodnight to our friends and we go to a room and we get into bed and she says very quietly, I'm done. <laughs> and I responded, uh, yeah, this was a shitty week. I'm so glad it's over. I'm really looking forward to having the weekend with you. And she says, no, you don't understand. I want a divorce. I don't, you know, she says, I love you. I think you're amazing. You're awesome. You're not even a good roommate anymore. <laughs> um, none of this is any fun for me. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want this. Uh, and you're killing yourself and I'm not enjoying watching you kill yourself. And I just, you know, this doesn't work. I was self-aware enough to know that you should never go to bed uh, never go to sleep if you're in that kind of a place with your partner. Like, you know, you keep talking about it. So we talked about it for a while, probably an hour. I sort of talked her off the ledge and I said, look, let's this weekend, here's my phone. Here's my computer, no phone, no computer for the rest of the weekend. Let's just talk and let's talk about what's going on. And okay, we went to, we go to bed, we get up the next morning uh, and we go for a walk. And uh, she says, uh, the fundamental problem uh, is that I just, I hate what you're doing to yourself. I hate the way you're behaving, you know, what you're doing. I, I understand you're trying to make all this stuff work. I understand you think that work is really important. And, I under, you know, I'm not saying any of this isn't, you know, important, but it's just, it's not a way to live. And, uh, you know, we dug into a few things and there's a few things that came out. One was <clears throat> the, the fundamental problem in the end, this didn't come out in that first conversation, but the fundamental problem was my words didn't match my actions. Mm -hmm. And the instantiation of that is I would say to Amy that she was the most important person in the world to me. And we'd be talking or we'd be out to dinner and my phone would ring and I'd just pick it up. Again, no caller ID and I was calling, just answer. Hey, hang on a second, right? Or I'd be 30 minutes late to everything we were doing together. 
sort of chronically late because I had just one more thing and I thought I could like Jack Power time travel from one part of LA to the other part of LA during a commercial break, like sort of living in that, in that kind of zone. And so it wasn't that my behavior was fundamentally bad, right? There wasn't infidelity. There wasn't, you know, violence. There wasn't uh, hostility and anger. I'm not a very angry person. I don't have much of it uh, externally angry. I don't have much of a temper. Um, uh, but there just wasn't like the ability to say, to, to, to match my actions with you're the most important person to me. And that didn't mean don't work hard. It just meant when you're with me, be with me and prioritize that. A few other things in it. And as we're sort of talking through this, trying to navigate over the weekend, I said to her, you know what? I've got an engineer's brain. Just give me some rules. And, and let me try to follow some rules. And this came from the quote, you know, where I, I had said to her, you know, it's on me. I, this is not a you, Amy problem. This is a me, Brad problem. And I'm committed. I want to be in this relationship. I don't want to get divorced. I don't want to split up. Um, uh, so I know I have to change. So give me some rules. And her first reaction to give me some rules was, uh-uh, that's, that's not romantic. That's not what I want. You know, that's putting it on me. And I said, look, think of it as a way to control me. Like, I, I need new patterns and I need some help creating new patterns. Clearly I'm not creating the new patterns by myself. And, uh, I kind of had her at the word control. Uh, and, and she's like, okay, uh, here's what I want you to do. Uh, I'm like, okay, I'm ready for the rules. So it says rule number one, I want you to keep track of your time and report it to me at the end of every day, how much time you worked. Hmm. And I said, uh, and the reason I said, uh, is my first company which was a software consulting company, we tracked our time in five-minute increments. And I ran that business for seven years. It little timesheets, and we would film out like lawyers did, and then somebody entered them to computer. I was just hated it. And when we sold that company, I said, I'm never doing that again. I'm never keeping track of my time again. And I have a you know, big red button in the middle of your forehead. For those of you with partners, like you know what your partner's big red button is, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you know it triggers them. And she knew this was one of those things. And in some ways, she was just testing. Right. She was testing to see if I was serious. And I said, ah, that sucks. I don't want to do that. And she's like, you told me I could make the rules. And so I did that for about a year. And, you know, that was one of about 20 things that, you know, we sort of did differently, including uh, something we call life dinner, which is we go out on the first night of every month and do, uh, if you know, agile software development, we do a retrospective of the last month and then we do sprint planning for the next month. <laughs> Uh, and we have a, a gift exchange. It can be fancy or not as a starting point to market. It's not date night. We have plenty of dates. Mm-hmm. It's this very deliberate on the first day of the month uh, time. And, and, and I'll end with this story. It, it came from, again, that, that weekend and talking. And she said, I, I want to spend really focused time with you. And I said, I want to spend really focused time with you. And she says, how about we have dinner the first night of every month? And I said, I don't know if I can commit to that. You know, travel, this, that, whatever. She says, you have a calendar, right? And knowing full well, I used an online calendar. I said, yeah, I have a calendar. And she says, you can make appointments on that calendar, right? I'm like, yeah. And she says, you can make repeating appointments on that calendar, right? Yeah. She says, how about you make a repeating appointment on the calendar for the first day of every month from 6 to 8 p.m. that says life dinner dash Amy. <laughs> and you have it repeat forever. And like you tell people like, that's what you got on the first of every month. And sure enough, like maybe once a year or twice a year, I'd say to her, 
can we do it on the third? Can we do it on the 31st? Because I really have a thing I want to do on the first. I have a place I have to go. And, I, and as long as it was a week or two in advance notice, and as long it was delivered, that was fine. Mm-hmm. Right. So again, words and actions. And, and that ended up, that was 20 years ago. And it's not perfect. I mean, we have lots of ups and downs. We have plenty of moments where, you know, we get out of sync, mm-hmm. but we have lots of tools now as a couple uh, for working through it. And for me, um, uh, it's been very powerful in my own behavioral change because it was the beginning. I was 35 in 2000, I'm about to turn 55. It was the beginning of a shift of prioritization for me where I started to do a better job, not a great job, but a better job of prioritizing myself. And as I wander up to 55, um, uh, it is one of my, I believe it is one of my big struggles is continuing to prioritize myself mm-hmm. in the context of things. And it's, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, we can go deeper if we want, but it's one of the things that as I've gotten older, um, in my context of my relationship with Amy, I feel like I've done a pretty good job in the context of, uh, you know, of prioritizing myself in our relationship against other things but against the backdrop of so many other parts of life, especially with work is still something that I struggle with pretty profoundly. Yeah. My brain went to kind of where you finished there, which was that your relationship with Amy and that tension kind of reminded me in some ways of my relationship with myself in early years of struggling as an entrepreneur, feeling anxiety, feeling depression. And I would have these you know, I'd have these moments of awareness, like, you know, like, oh my God, I can't sleep. Or I'm going into a meeting and I'm like, I absolutely feel unprepared for this. Not because I technically wasn't prepared, but mentally I wasn't in a good place for it. And I would have these wake up moments where I'd say, I need to, I need to change something. Something's off track. And then I would lose it. And I would go back into working harder, working more hours. And, um, only gosh, it was, a, it was at least a decade of that for me. Um, even in my twenties, I actually had this kind of false belief that, that like adults don't have this problem. And so it's just must be a problem of my youth. Like someday when I get older, it's going to get better. And so I would push it back and push it back. And I found, you know, myself through my lowest point, setting some boundaries for myself that I started to follow rules that I created for myself in the same way you're talking about, Amy helped create them for you. And within a year or so of doing that, I started to actually trust myself because I built the rules. And so it's really interesting, this concept of, um, I think as many of us as entrepreneurs are trying to have as much freedom as possible and not have rules that surround us, yet it sounds like you're thriving now in an environment that has a couple more rules than your previous environment. I thrive in an environment now where I've created more rules for myself. How do you, how do you see the balance of those two things? We all want freedom, right, as entrepreneurs, but then we like rules. What's up with that? Well, two things. One is um, I'm not actually sure that today I have – the rules, I think the rules I use to change my behavior. And we have rhythms. So things like life dinner that we continue to do, Mm -hmm. things like we do a thing called a quarterly vacation, we call it a QX vacation. So every quarter we take a week off the grid completely. Mm -hmm. Uh, No phone, no email. Uh, We don't always go anywhere. And then certainly in the time of COVID, we don't go anywhere, but we just disconnect. Mm -hmm. Um, I do something called digital Sabbath now. Uh, Friday night to Sunday morning, I don't work. I'm not online. I'm not available. Um, and so there's there's rhythms. Um, and initially, those were those were rules that then turned into rhythms that were sustainable rhythms. 
um, and, and became integrated into long-term behavior change. Mm-hmm. You, you, so I, so I, I think the rules are really helpful in figuring out what rhythms are helpful to you. By the way, there's plenty of rules that we've stopped. You know, we, we set uh, parameters or rules for something and we're like, yeah, it doesn't work or we don't care about that anymore. Or, we don't want to do that. Anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an example for a very long time of, of, of a rule was whenever Amy called me, I answered no matter what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at some point that shifted to texting. And when it shifted to texting, uh, the, unless, you know, you could give more content. Mm-hmm. And unless it was, I need something right now, there wasn't the sense of you had to respond immediately. You could respond, you know, whenever. But if there was a question, and, and literally just so you know, when you were talking, Amy texted me with a question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just responded while we were talking. So like, you know, you adjust based on whatever the rhythms are that work for you. Um, when we traveled, uh, I'll give you an example of a new one that introduced when I traveled, I traveled for a long time, all the time, we would say good morning and we would say good night every day. Mm-hmm. So whoever we used to try to get, like whoever gets up last is the one that calls. And at some point we just said, fuck it, because she always gets time zones backwards. <laughs> um, and so I said, just, you know what, whenever you wake up, call me. And if I'm asleep, that's good morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we sort of roll through those sorts of things, but you know, we're home all the time. So well, we don't need to do that. Uh, but, uh, one of the rhythms that we introduced is we spend, uh, we used to spend four minutes in the morning, just have a quick conversation, set the day, whether we're together or distant, that would be the good morning. Mm-hmm. Now we have uh, a cup of coffee together and we might spend 15, 30 minutes, um, because I don't have to travel anywhere. I don't have to commute, like making that time intentional. Mm-hmm. You used a word that, um, and you used it twice, used it at the beginning too, that is not, is a word I used to use for a long time. I don't use it anymore, mm-hmm. which is balance. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's a helpful word. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure it's a hurtful word, but I don't think it's a helpful word. I, I prefer the word harmony. And, and the reason is that I have never had work and life in balance. Uh, they never are balanced, whatever the balance metaphor is. And of course, there's this endless you know, thing in entrepreneurship. You hear it all over, over and over again, that if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to give up work-life balance. Mm-hmm. Maybe, but you don't have to give up work-life harmony. Mm-hmm. And harmony, especially like if you think about harmony and the notion of improv jazz. Mm-hmm. And, and improv jazz, if you listen to improv jazz live, uh, you know, it's kind of going along and it's beautiful. And then it gets a little out of sync. Somehow they get out of whatever. And then something changes and they get back in harmony. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's how I think about it now, which is like m- more often than not, things are in harmony. Work and life. When they're out of harmony, there's usually some pretty aggressive signals. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the aggressive signal is an unhappy partner. Sometimes the aggressive signal is anxiety or depression. Sometimes it's exhaustion. Uh, sometimes it's other things. Um, and the, it instantiates differently with every person. And you get to define what harmony means. Whereas I think it's harder to define what balance means because balance does imply something very sort of formulaic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've tried to shift in my conversations with people, which is, you know, this shit's hard, even just between when life is good and work is good, it's hard. Mm -hmm. 
All right, now let's toss some shit on top of that. How about a global pandemic? Mm -hmm. How about, you know, complete readjustment of the way we have to interact with each other because now we're living in little boxes on a screen all day long? Mm -hmm. uh, how about fear of death, which we all have as humans, but now is more front and center for some of us. Mm -hmm. And how about the emotional response if there are people on this call that have the same, the emotional response I have, I'm very scared, I'll say it a different way, I'm very scared of the disease. Mm -hmm. um, my clinical diagnosis is obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, uh, I've learned how to manage my OCD and I've learned how to separate my obsessive thoughts from my compulsive behaviors. But one of the things that most people that have OCD clinically is, is that they're germaphobes. They don't like dirt. Uh, they tend to be afraid of, of sickness and disease. Um, and, and so like, it's very front and center for me. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the moment of, of that we're in here, it's a lot of stress for me to be with other people, mm -hmm. rationally and irrationally. Right, so I'm, I'm aware that part of that anxiety is irrational, but that's what it is. And so for me, if I want to eliminate that anxiety, I just sit behind a screen and interact with people this way rather than get together with them in person. Mm -hmm. The only time I leave my house is to go run. And in Boulder, actually, we have a mile loop around our property. So I was just running circles around our property for a while. Uh, I'm in Aspen at our place now, and I run on the trails. Um, and when I go back to Boulder, I'll probably run on the trails again because I've gotten a little less crazy about the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I go for a run on, on the trail here. I passed 20 or 30 people. Actually, the first day I was in Aspen, I, passed, I saw more people the first day in person than I had in the preceding five months, cumulative. <laughs> and, and mass compliance is about 50%. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to make a judgment on what people think about mass compliance, but if you're a germaphobe, if you have OCD, if you're scared of the disease, you want everybody to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. And uh, the level of anxiety, which then uh, instantiated for me as anger mm -hmm. at the people who weren't, and again, I'm, I said this earlier, I'm not an angry person. So it wasn't external anger. It's not like, you fucker, you should be wearing a mask. It wasn't that, mm -hmm. right? But it was the internal uh, anxiety and anger of, why isn't that person wearing a mask? Why isn't that, per oh, that person's wearing a mask, good. And sort of that, you know, like, whatever your version of that is in this moment, you have kids and they're in your house all day long and you badly want them to go back to school so that you don't have to deal with being a, a parent working and taking care of your kids all day. And your kids are doing, you know, zoom school that's shitty. Yeah. Uh, and they're, you have a teenager that's not getting time with, you know, her friends or his friends. Like, you know, that's a whole nother layer of things that you have to then, how does any of that just coming back to balance? How do you ever get any of that shit in balance? You don't. But you can sort of figure out how to get it so it, it works, works well enough, even in the world where there's intense pressure. Yeah. Yeah. So many of our members are serial entrepreneurs, and the fact that they're in Founders First System in our community probably means they've experienced moments when things went haywire. Um, that moment I mentioned earlier when my stress and anxiety took over, um, you know, was literally a moment on the floor where I was having a panic attack in my office to the point that I couldn't move, I couldn't get up. I thought I was having a heart attack. I was... 31 years old at the time, confused why I'm having a heart attack and not sure what was happening. My mind and body were shutting down. Um, and this was actually a year after my most successful company was sold. So I had this like epiphany and, and kind of 
sad awareness in that moment that um, when I sold my company, I didn't sell my stress. That was still part of me. And it was a pattern that I had built. And the acquirers, <laughs> lucky for them, didn't get that. I got to keep that part for myself. Um, <laughs> so you had this moment, this epiphany moment. You and Amy decided it was time to right size. Work had taken over. And for your health and your marriage, there was no other option um, but to fix it. You talked about some of the steps. Just, I want to ask about how long did it take to, to detox from that previous lifestyle? Like you're an adult at this point. So, you know, some people said 10 years ago that our brains are fully formed by age 35. We now know with neuroplasticity research, we can change our patterns and, and how our brains are composed. Um, so you were kind of in that mid thirties and you needed to make a huge change in your life. Does it take a week, a month, 10 years? I think it's a continual journey. I don't think it ever stops. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's 20 years later. I think my relationship with work is healthier. Mm -hmm. um, but if you come back to the thing I said a, a little bit ago, one of my foundational problems continues to be doing things for me versus doing things for others. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're around tech stars, you know the phrase give first, mm -hmm. the idea of putting energy into the system. You know, when uh, Dave asked me to do this and, you know, we got connected, I didn't say, uh, yeah, I'll do this if you pay me X mm -hmm. or here's my requirement for doing this. I just said, sure, I'll do that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't have good, uh, I, I'm not, I, I don't have, I'm not effective at creating the appropriate boundaries around that. Some people do things like this in search of something. Mm -hmm. Or I say anybody does this in search of something, right? You know, it could be money, it could be ego, it could be gratification, it could be positive feedback, it could be uh, unburdening yourself, it could, like whatever. There's some there's some fundamental dynamic that you know I would I would spend an hour with y'all. Um, if if you come back and say, well, what is that? I could give you an answer. It's not a very satisfying answer to me. It might be a satisfying answer to you. But when I actually look at it in myself, I say, you know, I'm not sure that I'm doing these things for me. Mm -hmm. And I had a, you know, we all create narratives about why we do things and those narratives are long lasting, but there come a place and for anybody here that's been doing something for a while. And then you realize that the narrative or your, your explanation, rationalization or justification for it is wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a heavy blow because you kind of now have to readjust how you think and approach it. So I think it's a lifelong journey. Um, for me, uh, the relationship dynamic is a vector. Mm -hmm. I think if Amy was sitting here, I think we feel extremely fortunate in this moment with our relationship. We've done a lot of work together to get to a place where we love being, I mean, we love being together all the time, mm -hmm. but we have a really good understanding of each other and how, uh, to support the other without uh, that being a burden on oneself. Mm -hmm. um, when I think about, okay, so I have different categories of things. How about work? Well, the work I do is very rewarding. And there are elements of the work, you know, that are very satisfying. And I have relationships in my work that are extremely positive. I have plenty of stuff that's fucked up and lots of stressors. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, it's, it's from any sort of external measure, it's, uh, very positive. Go a step deeper and now introduce me into that. It's the same work I've been doing for 25 years. Hmm. 
I had a friend say to me today, what do you mean? You're, you're an investor. You get to invest in all these different companies. Like everything's different, isn't it? Like, well, the companies are different, but the work's the same. Hmm. And 25 years is a long time to do anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, also in the context of that kind of a time frame, it's also very, very challenging to say, okay, well, I'm done. See ya. Mm-hmm. Right? So then you shift to the third category, which is for me. And that linkage is one that I think I will continue to have to work on for many years. Mm-hmm. And if you'd asked me five years ago, I might have said, I think I got that figured out. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's not that you end up in this, you know, if we search for meaning as humans, you're, and, and especially as business people, entrepreneurs, or leaders, like you're searching for that, that thing that says, this works. If I, I got it, if I can just get this, and there is no, if I can just get this, because mm-hmm. you get this and then you're in a different context and you got to deal with a different thing. And then you got different stressors. And then, you know, again, let's come back to the, the fear of death and COVID and mortality, like, you know, independent of what your religious beliefs are. Uh, my view is, you know, we, we are all on a path uh, where the end of that path is death. Mm-hmm. And uh, along that path, you start to think not, oh my gosh, I'm going to die tomorrow. Um, but I did a call earlier today with a friend who's, you know, I, I just found out is in the hospital, very mm-hmm. sick. He's an older person. He's in his 80s, seven, late 70s, early 80s. Um, have a lot of affection for. I haven't seen him in a while in person. We've had some interactions. His wife, who I'm also friends with, texted me saying, I know he'd love a call. And, you know, our comment was his spirits are high, but his prognosis is bad. Mm. Um, and that, you know, it was three hours ago. And that was unexpected. Like, you know, that's part of our experience as humans. Mm-hmm. And every time you touch it, whether it's with a parent or a friend or even somebody you don't know, um, but that is known, it's a reminder of the finiteness of the experience. Mm-hmm. And the idea that I don't think you ever get it right. You just keep trying things and learning things and having new experiences and having new successes and having new failures mm-hmm. and having lots of exogenous things, some that are wonderful, some that are awful. Mm-hmm. And you know, for most people on this call, I, I don't know everybody here, but for most people on this call, I think we're Generally speaking, uh, uh, I'll speak for myself. I won't speak for the people on the call. I recognize that I'm very privileged. I've got lots of resources. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I've got lots of freedom and degrees of freedom. Uh, And, you know, in the context of being isolated to just myself, I can have a certain frame of reference. As I open up that frame of reference or the aperture more broadly, uh, to society, you know, society as a whole is the full aperture being open. Mm-hmm. You see all kinds of inequities, all kinds of challenges, all kinds of things where it's motivating or interesting, whether it's in the context of your business, the context of your philanthropy, the context of just your, your being to try to improve things. Mm-hmm. But it is just a constant, a constant and endless journey. Mm-hmm. And I'll end with, you know, the cliche, there is a big one, which is the journey is the reward. It's a hollow cliche. I mean, I've been on plenty of journeys that were not the fucking reward. Right? I didn't want to be on that particular journey, even if I learned a lot from it and got through it. Yeah. Um, but it's this sort of notion that the, this moment is the moment. And what's happened, you can't do anything about. And what's coming, you can't anticipate. 
And how you're doing in this moment is one that allows you to have constant adjustment, especially as a leader, especially as a founder, against what matters to you. Because you know what's coming is going to be unpredictable. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of this context around teams keeping each other safe, kind of in the, in the way that you and Amy do it. It, it made me think of, um, we had a, a Techstars company come through our program this spring that had several co-founders. And after talking about what they, where they were personally, their health personally, where they struggled, where they felt like they'd been successful, they, they came out of our program with this understanding that, that really blew me away, which was that before thinking about this, they all, all three of them felt like they had to be on every day all the time. And there was, even between the three of them, there was really no ability to say, look, like today is not the day for me, or I need two days off because I'm not in a, in a good place right now. And here's whether they shared what they were struggling with or not. And they came out of the program with this new understanding that they brought to me and they said, our new plan going forward is that only one out of the three of us has to be great at any given time. And the other two of us can be totally screwed up. And it was this breath of fresh air. It was a breath of fresh air for me to even think about that that could be a way we think about this across teams. We don't all have to be great all the time, especially among a co-founding team and a company. If it's okay, it's not just explicitly okay to, for one person to have a bad day, but in fact, they put the standard the other direction. Only one of them really has to be in a good place. Really, really powerful. I, I was listening to your Tim Ferriss interview and you mentioned that something about the, I think you said there were four founders at Foundry Group and that you had kind of an understanding or a pact as you were starting Foundry Group to be there for each other. That's not a normal business thing for a couple of co-founders to say to each other. I'm just curious about that. Where'd that come from? Well, it, it came from a lot of history. Uh, and I think you're touching on something uh, that's really powerful, which is the idea of emotional safety. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my relationship with Amy today, uh, and we don't have children, so it's really just us, uh, we both feel incredibly emotionally safe mm-hmm. with each other. So it allows you to have a bad moment. It allows you to be having a difficult day. Um, part of emotional safety is learning and understanding the other people's reactions to stressors. So I know that when Amy gets upset with me, it usually means she's afraid of something for me. She's scared of something for me. Um, I know when she's anxious, it's usually anticipatory of something that's coming that she's responsible for. And she doesn't get anxious very much, but it's like you, you start to learn these things. And having emotional safety with your partner or with your, with your life partner or with your kids or with your parents or with your business partners is important. Um, you know, it's worth saying, I don't have equivalent emotional safety uh, with my parents. I, I have a very close relationship with my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were very good parents, they're both still alive, and I have a deep affection for them. But I don't have the same level of emotional safety, um, which, you know, if my mother heard this, she'd be like, well, you know, wh- what do I do that causes you not to feel that way? And I'm like, mom, it's too much therapy. Like, don't, you know, it's okay. Like, we, <laughs> we got we got to figure it out enough at this point. Yeah. Um, and in a business context, I think emotional safety is critical. And so many business contexts don't have emotional safety. Mm-hmm. And it's true amongst founders. In addition, it's not a constant. You can't just say, okay, we're going to have emotional safety here. It, it is deep dependency on behavior over a long period of time. And it is especially true when you introduce new people into the mix. And so if you have a static collection of people that never changes, you might be able to manage that. But once you start adding other people into the system, 
you start to see where there is maybe a perception or a belief or a desire for emotional safety, but it's not necessarily linked to the behaviors. Mm-hmm. And over a period of time, a lot of those behaviors can become either routinized or ritualized. And it's very true in relationships too. Mm-hmm. So you can feel like you're, you know, you, we know, I, again, I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to talk about any person individually, but you know, I'm sure everybody here has stories of a couple that looked like everything was going fine. And then suddenly one of them asked for divorce mm-hmm. or a couple was doing fine. And then all of a sudden one of them acknowledged that they were having an affair, mm-hmm. um, you know, or whatever, pick your trauma for the couple that looked like everything was going fine. And it's because of they had created an environment that maybe had emotional safety, but they weren't continuing to work whenever they had conflict. Mm-hmm. They weren't acknowledging that they were in a place where, you know what, that hurt me. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't need to carry it around with me, but it hurt me. And it's both directions. It's not just, by the way, the person doing the hurting. It's also the person who got hurt who's now unable to say, you hurt me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, imagine a situation, Aaron, where you and I are partners for a long time. And at the beginning of a relationship, there's a lot of emotional safety. There's a lot of emotional intimacy. Uh, we talk a lot about things. And 10 years later, you know, we're still, we're still friendly and we get along and we're good partners. But, you know, there's endless numbers of little, you know, whatever you want to call them, whether they're hostilities, microaggressions, um, undermining uh, that I'm doing to you. Mm-hmm. You will blow up at some point. Mm-hmm. And that's both of our responsibility, because in that moment, you know, that it happened, you didn't say, hey, hey, Brad, cut the shit out like that. That's bullshit. Uh, let's talk about it or whatever the style is. And then, by the way, when you blow up, if my response is to hear it and to really say, I really want to commit to changing, like I did with Amy in mm-hmm. 2000, well, you get back to a place of emotional safety. But if you, you hear, you know, I hear you and I'm like, you know what? I'm 50, you know, I'm 53, uh, 54 years old going on 55. Take it or leave it, buddy. You've been dealing with me for a decade. You know what I am? Mm-hmm. You know, so those things are endlessly shifting. And so I think the three founders that said that is, is great. Let's assume they get funded. Let's assume their business scales. Let's assume they now have some investors around the table. And let's assume that two of them are doing great most of the time. And one of them's not doing great ever. Mm-hmm. That's not going to work anymore. Hey, it was just that one of us had to be great and the other two could be, but wait a second, it's been six months that you've not been great. Yeah. And that's not working anymore. So those things are not, this is the important part of it for me. It's they're not static. I come back to this. It's ever shifting. And I think that's part of the mystery of so many things about our existence. Um, because you can't, you know, it's, it's non-deterministic. You can't say if we just do this for the next 20 years, then this will be the outcome. Mm-hmm. You can't, maybe. And maybe somebody's going to die in the next two years, or maybe somebody's going to become involved in another romantic relationship and move across the country. Mm-hmm. Or maybe somebody's going to decide that they want to go to graduate school and become a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you're going to wake up one day and be like, that person's not pulling their weight. Mm-hmm. I don't want them in the, I don't want them in the business anymore. Like those are things that just happen mm-hmm. and they're all hard. And so like maybe underneath it all in the end, it's not just emotional safety, but it's again, the linkage of all those things that come back to the word harmony. Yeah. I love that. Harmony, everyone. That's a great takeaway instead of balance. So 
Brad, let's imagine you go back in time. You see the younger version of yourself, and young Brad Feld is crushing it at MIT. Oh, the word crushing it. No, oh, that bothers me. Anyway, uh, and uh, looks at you and says, I want to build companies. I want to live a happy life. What advice would you give yourself and any entrepreneurs who are just getting started about how to find happiness? I will, I will start with uh, one adjustment, which is it, uh, it is almost impossible to crush it at MIT. MIT, <laughs> MIT crushes you. That's, that's, yeah. that's actually part of the, the beauty and magic of the place. Um, there's a very small percentage of people who, who, who are off the charts, but 90% of the people that go to MIT, uh, it is it is a a, a crushing experience and mm -hmm. and and it really transforms you because of how intense it is. Mm -hmm. I would tell myself a couple of things. One is if I could time travel back to age twenty, I'd say um, number one, uh, take more time for you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I still work hard, but I worked. 100 hours a week. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I was always maxed. And I, you know, I, I ran and I had dinner with friends and things like that. But it was like work was so central. And there were like, I probably didn't take a vacation, a real vacation until I was in my mid to late 20s. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I would have said that. I would have said, just make some time for yourself. You'll be, you'll be better. Mm -hmm. um, next, I, I traveled a lot in the U.S., but I didn't travel around the world. I traveled a little bit, but not a lot. And I would have said to my younger self, you know what? You're at this place where you have no functional responsibility yet other than to you. Um, don't rush into having functional responsibility quite so fast, even as I was running my first business. Um, I, 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 I adulted too fast as a young person. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would have, I would have told my younger self that next I would have said, um, when you think about, uh, what you're doing, experiment with lots of different ways of being now, so you can find the patterns or the rhythms that you like. Mm -hmm. What I had to do was the opposite. We talked about it earlier is I had to undo patterns and rhythms and create new ones. And even at 50, 54 going on 55, I'm still fighting through that as I try to find more satisfying and more healthy uh, rhythms of, of not just work, but of life in general. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's not because my rhythms are bad. It's just they need to continue to change. And because I didn't do that kind of experimenting when I was young, I didn't really build the instincts for it. Um, the last is I have never had a real phase shift in my adult life. Uh, so, you know, it, for any of you who have sold a business and then walked away or been fired from a business or had a business fail and shut it down um, or transitioned from a company to another company and taken some time off, I literally have not had a gap. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I started my first company when I was in school, my first successful company when I was in school. Uh, I sold that company to a public company while I was at the public company. I started making angel investments. I left the public company, uh, but still consulted for them, uh, while I was making angel investments and very, very busy. And then I accidentally became a VC at a firm that was affiliated with SoftBank, became called Mobius Venture Capital. 
uh, and, uh, you know, along that path, uh, ultimately started Techstars and then Foundry Group. And I'm still managing the very tail end of Mobius Venture Capital. So I've never had like, you, you know, a day where you wake up and you have no to-do list, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? I've never had, whether it's a month, three months, six months, or a year, I've taken a sabbatical, I've taken a month sabbatical, but I've never had kind of, I'm done with this. Okay, next. Mm-hmm. And I would have told my younger self to find that mm-hmm. and to do that and to let there be some transitions that gave me time and space to think and process. Mm-hmm. Love that. Uh, great question here from Kevin. Um, for entrepreneurs who have had anxiety and depression, how have you seen it impact their businesses? What interventions have you seen that make a difference in their businesses? Also, Besides your book, Startup Life, why don't more entrepreneurs write about the impact startups have on their marriages or uh, families? Let's start with the last one. I think most people are full of shit. And, and most people uh, externally. And most people want to portray themselves, you know, as the hero of the story. And um, it's especially true in uh, many aspects of our, of our world. And by the way, when I say most people are full of shit, I don't mean that people are bad and that they're full of shit. Most people are just not dealing with their own shit. And mm-hmm. when people talk about their experiences, I think you can actually find a decent amount of this now on the web. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you, if you hunt around in medium and for blogs, for sort of deeper writing, you'll find more of it today in 2020 than, you know, there's almost none of it when I wrote with Amy startup life in 2013 or 14, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the reasons we wrote the book. There was just none of it. And people would talk about failure, but they wouldn't talk, they'd talk about failure of their business. They wouldn't talk about their own, their own failure. Every now and then you get a public speaker that would be very good at sort of the, the, the hero, you know, uh, failure hero narrative. And you'd sort of hear that in the mix. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it was always that kind of a curve. And that's not the curve that most of us go through as humans. Most of us go through as humans, especially as founders, have some high highs and some low lows. Um, and you know, it's very, uh, and those high highs and those low lows impact you professionally and personally and continually. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it's just because people are afraid. People are trying to create their own narrative. People internally, they're afraid to acknowledge what's going on. Externally, they're trying to portray themselves a certain way. Yeah. And I'll just go, I'll just go to uh, mental health as, as a specific example. When I started talking publicly about my struggles with depression in 2013, um, uh, I knew there was an enormous stigma around it and I just didn't care anymore. Hmm. In, in, uh, 1992 or one or whenever it was that I got depressed for the first time, um, I was terrified of talking to anybody. I felt incredible stigma and shame, shame hmm. about being depressed, about, uh, seeing a psychiatrist, about taking medication. And my entire sort of professional world, if I had been open about that, the the shame was overwhelming to me and the stigma was so profound. Mm -hmm. And I was really fortunate that I had a few, a couple of people who I was able to talk to about this that I could try, that I trusted other than uh, my psychiatrist. Um, By 2013, like, eh, you know, whatever. And part of the whatever was a couple of well-known entrepreneurs had committed suicide in the preceding 12 months. And I was blogging all the time, very publicly about all aspects of my life. 
And Amy and I had just had this book come out. And my internal narrative was, if I don't talk about how I'm feeling right now, I'm full of shit. I'm more full of shit than everybody else. If I, everything's good, don't look over here. I'm in this deep clinical depression. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I just, I just, I did it. And part of it to this question specifically is one of my goals with the benefit of hindsight is to eliminate the stigma associated with depression. Mm-hmm. I personally am very functional when I'm depressed. I can get my work done. I don't, I can't work 15 hours a day. Um, but you know, I have to use all my energy to get out of bed. I get out of bed in the morning. I finally get out, you know, the virtual door now, but get out the door. Uh, and I can work and I can work intensely for eight to 10 hours. And then I got nothing left. Zero. I lay on the couch and stare at the ceiling. I don't even want to watch TV. I don't want to read a book. I don't want to eat dinner. I don't want to do anything. And so I, I was able to, in a work context, when I'm depressed, compress all my energy to get through the work I've got to do. Uh, because I also know that I need to change a bunch of behaviors, but most of what I need to do is give myself more space. I've learned over time. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of tactical things in terms of my physiology. When you come back to like how it impacts businesses, it's all over the place and it's very situational. It's very person-dependent, business-dependent. And my advice for entrepreneurs who are depressed uh, or who are anxious or you know, who suffer uh, from um, bipolar disorder uh, or who have hypomania uh, or you know, have borderline personality disorder, pick your thing, doesn't matter. That literally doesn't matter. The, the entrepreneurs who learn how to navigate their way through it are the ones who commit to working on themselves. Hmm. And they learn how to navigate their way through it with other people, with work, with their personal life, and with themselves. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean go to therapy. That's, it's a much more profound thing. And it takes time. Um, and interestingly, um, you, you do have to pop up a level uh, in those moments with your business if you haven't done that work because there's lots of situations where you might be able to be effective or you might not. Mm-hmm. A lot of us self-medicate, whether it's with drugs or with alcohol or with uh, bad behavior. Mm-hmm. A lot of us uh, uh, interact with people in a way uh, that's very hurtful as a way to deflect from ourselves. Mm-hmm. And those things can be very destructive, not just to the other person and the people you're working with, not just to you, but to the business. And so like kind of going, you know, if, if people are struggling with anything and they come take anything away from this, it's when you're struggling, it's okay to struggle. Mm-hmm. Kind of go deep and try to be deliberate against the backdrop of what your daily responsibilities are. Yeah. Um, I see Jennifer's question. I like it a lot. How, how, how have you communicated your boundaries to your business partners? Yeah. Um, my, uh, I've, had, I've had multiple uh, multiple instances. My first business, my business partner was a guy named Dave Jill, who's still one of my closest friends. And when I got depressed, when I was running my first company, I told him I was depressed. And he was very um, rattled by it um, at first. He didn't really know what to do with it. Um, he, he's an engineer and has an engineer's brain like me. So there's a lot of, you know, well, tell me more. How do you feel? What's going on? We're extremely close friends at that time. But I was we had, you know, we were co-founders. We had difficult moments. We had a restaurant, a Japanese restaurant called Nara and that was around the corner from our office in Boston. Whenever we had a fight uh, or whenever we had a disagreement, the, uh, the one of the two of us would say at the end of the day, let's go to Nara. And that was signal for we got conflict. Let's go solve our conflict over some beer and sushi. 
And, um, uh, you know, as I talked through this with him, uh, he said, well, what, what can I do? I said, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but just know. And if I'm doing things, you know, that, that are hurtful or that are difficult or not being responsible or not, they just tell me. And he ended up being incredibly helpful because he was a strong support in that time. And again, I was pretty functional, but I wasn't as intense. I didn't work as hard. And he absorbed some of the energy and pressure. In 2013, uh, when I realized I was depressed, um, I just, and I had, you know, and I had moments of, of shorter depressive episodes with my, with my partners at Foundry. I just told my partners we had an offsite and I said, I'm depressed. You know, I've been depressed for an extended period of time, multiple times. Here's what's going on. Here's what's going to happen next. I have no idea how long it's going to happen. Here's, you know, I just need some space. I don't need any of you to fix me. That doesn't help a depressed person. When somebody's depressed and you say, what can I do to help you? It's just putting another burden on that person. They don't know what you need to help them. And really all I need you to do is just know that I'm here and, and just be uh, emotionally available to me if I reach out. And, and they were great. Um, and that kind of, uh, that kind of communication, I think is so key, mm-hmm. but it comes back to what we were talking about a little while ago. If I didn't have emotional safety with my partners, I couldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there are plenty of people, even though I was very public about it, there are, there were plenty of people in the world who were very uncomfortable with me in a moment. I mean, I remember an LP of ours coming up to me and, and kind of being very, very awkward and uncomfortable and trying to put his arm around me, you know, at a, a thing like, hey, I know, I know you're struggling some and like, uh, and just very awkward in comparison to another LP who called me up and said, you're super brave. Uh, I've struggled with depression my whole life. I can't tell anybody. I'm afraid it would torch my career. Um, know that I understand, you know, at least from my frame of reference, what it means. I I just, you know, thank you. Uh, you know, and, you know, there was no judgment. There was no anything. So it's that kind of a dynamic uh, that you have to have emotional safety and you have to also then have contextual awareness with the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I'll turn it around. I know we're going to run out of time. On the other end of the spectrum, if you are with someone who's depressed, just try not to put the burden of what to do on them. Mm. Hey, Aaron. I know you're depressed. What can I do to help? Is not the most unhelpful thing, but it's on the far end of unhelpful spectrum. And I'm just going to end with a very positive. Um, when I was depressed uh, in 2013, my partner Dave, who was no longer my partner, just now a close friend who lived in Boulder, mm-hmm. knew that one of the things that I needed when I was depressed, and I need all the time, a big runner, I need to be outside, I need to be alone, I like to be sort of in the, in the trees, in the mountains. Um, and he knew that when I'm depressed, I'm not taking care of myself on that dimension very well. Mm-hmm. And so what he started doing was literally not asking me, did I want to go for a walk? He would call my assistant. He would find out when I had an hour on my calendar during the week. He would tell her not to schedule anything in that calendar, uh, in that hour. He said, don't schedule anything. Just leave it blank. So Brad has a blank hour. And he would show up at my office five minutes to the blank hour. And he'd poke his head in my door when I got off whatever I was done or whatever meeting. And he'd be there. And he'd say, uh, you want to go for a walk? He knew how I processed my calendar, which is that I didn't really look at it. I just went to the next thing. 
when the little thing popped up and I said, oh, I got an hour free. Yeah, let's go for a walk. And, you know, we go for a walk. And um, the third time that he showed up like that randomly in the middle of the day and just happened to time it. So I had nothing. I figured out what he was doing. I said, <laughs> like, what, what are you, how are you getting this hour? Um, but we go for a walk and sometimes we talk and sometimes we wouldn't. That's incredible. And, and he knew what he knew is I just need to get on my feet and get my, my butt out of the chair and just sort of breathe a little bit uh, because I wasn't doing that. So it's, it's like, if you know the person, if they like chocolate, just leave a chocolate bar, a really nice chocolate bar on their desk. Don't ask them if they want a chocolate bar, just leave a chocolate bar on their <laughs> desk, right? It's like little things like that when the person's depressed is a jolt. And those are jolts of just unmitigated happiness and love and joy. And I, I think, you know, I won't be woo-woo about it, but I think those things are contributors to sort of the positive reinforcement path that gets you out of it. Incredible takeaways to leave us with. Brad, thank you once again for your time, your candor, and for all you do for founders and founder communities. You've inspired so many entrepreneurs, including all of us here, and we're so grateful for your time. Um, everyone, I want to just uh, remind you all that Brad's new book, Startup Community Way, Evolving an Entrepreneurial Ecosystems on Amazon, packed with great advice about mastering collaboration and developing startup communities that thrive. And I just have to mention it as well that we are thrilled to have Brad's very good friend and incredible leadership coach, Jerry Colonna, with us for our next Founders Forum. Leadership Fantastic. Radical self-inquiry. So mark your calendars for October 8th, 10.30 a.m. Mountain Time, and you can find it inside our community, inside Upends. So thanks, everyone. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. And I will tell you, Jerry will be 10 times better than me. So oh, heavens. If, I don't know how if we'll this, be able to handle that. If this was, if this was useful, the Jerry, Jerry is uh, incredible. So I strongly encourage that. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us at Founders First. This conversation continues in the Founders First community. Search Founders First community in the App Store on your phone to learn how to prioritize your health and wellness to become more successful. Get your questions answered by top entrepreneurs and receive notifications about upcoming shows. Until next time, stay healthy, be at your best, go change the world. Music